G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Research Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. And we're really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RVC podcast. We don't ask for much in return. We're incredibly grateful if you could pop to Apple Podcast or Acast or Spotify and leave us a review. Obviously, a five-star review would be great, um, but we really appreciate if you could take a couple of minutes of your time and leave us a review. So today, joining Brian and myself in the studio, we have Dr. Amy Barstow, who has done her PhD in farrier interventions in investigating shock absorption and load distribution in horses. We hope you enjoy. Uh, so today we have Dr Amy Barstow with us, who uh, has just uh, had a PhD accepted. Um, can I ask you the title of your PhD, please? You Amy? can indeed. So the title of my PhD is Shock Absorption in Horses Exercising on Hard Surfaces. So congratulations with that. Well, well done. Um, how did you get involved in that? So I have... I think the thing to start with is my my PhD was really heavily farriery focused and looking at different farriery techniques for managing kind of impact shock so that collision that occurs when the foot hits the ground and the subsequent vibrations that then travel up the leg investigating whether you can damp those vibrations as they move up the leg um and I'd say my interest or my appreciation in farriery started when I was still a vet student and I was lucky enough to win the Worshipful Company of Farriers Equine Studies Award. So I was able to go and spend a week with a farrier and then off the back of that was able to actually become a freeman of the Worshipful Company. So I've always had this kind of long-standing interest in research. And um, as an undergrad as well, I worked with Renata Weller and Tilo Fow on my undergrad research project and did some work with Tilo after I graduated as well. Um, and so they kind of emailed me and said, we've got this PhD, we think you should apply. And I said, no, <laughs> I want to go and work in practice and um, you know, bumble around the countryside vaccinating horses. Um, and then I thought about it a bit more and was like, if I'm ever going to do a PhD, it has to be farriery based and this is farriery based and how often do they come up? Um, so came to my senses, applied and took it from there, really. And so before that, you did uh, an internship at the AHT, is that, is that right? Yes, I did do an internship at the Animal Health Trust. Um, in, in horses, I suppose. Yeah, in horses, working yeah. with Sue. Excellent. So. And, uh, and so was, was, that, was that very lameness focused as well? So is it, is it locomotion and, and lameness that you've, you've always been interested in? So locomotion and lameness, yes, and um, it's really funny. So I'm actually putting a summer school presentation together to give to students that want to apply to the Royal Veterinary College. Um, and I start that talk by going, I always wanted to be a small animal vet. Um, and so my flip changed at university on meeting Renata and going, actually, this is way more interesting, in my opinion. Um, and also growing up with horses that had a kind of back history of lots of lameness issues and thinking well maybe maybe I should take some inspiration from my horse constantly being lame and seeing whether I can start right at the beginning of that process and I don't know it just kind of came from that as, as most things and so when you were starting your PhD was it more looking into the actual um uh, the the, the more what farriers could do for horses in that shock absorption and the materials involved or or how did it how did it start so it started from 
a basis in that there are a number of horses in the UK that have to work on hard surfaces and there's not any getting away from that. So we're thinking cavalry horses and police horses who instantly are the publicly funded horses as well, but also lots of leisure horses. They don't necessarily have access to specific surfaces for exercising on it so they're restricted to roads and tracks and bridleways and maybe hard fields in the summer when it dries out and we already know that the surface impacts on the degree of those impact vibrations so how big they are and how fast they're occurring um, and how kind of fast that load is applied to the leg during foot surface impact So we were sort of going, well, if you can't change the surfaces and we know these surfaces might potentially have an impact on whether these horses go lame or not, then is there something we can do with the shoeing instead? So I always like to try and think of it as you have foot surface impact. There's lots and lots of research on the surface side of that equation, but there's not so much on the foot side. So we were, in this case, primarily looking at the materials that you could shoe horses with and whether they were able to really make any difference to that foot surface interaction and to see forgive my ignorance amy but is it is it something is it more to do with the the load being um bore down like through the leg rather than the i suppose the traction involved because i believe do some police uh, horses have almost like little rubber soles around their shoes to try and help with their traction so they don't slip is that um, it's it's a combination of the two. So when you're thinking about foot surface impact, you're thinking about the fact that the horse's leg does need to slide before it comes to a complete stop to a certain degree, but also you don't want to slide too much because that's when you fall over. Um, and if you're thinking about surfaces, you want them to kind of sink into the surface to a certain degree but again not too much I always have this thing of like there's too much of a good thing when it comes to um, kind of damping with surfaces or slipping on surfaces as well there's a cutoff where that then becomes um, dangerous for the people that are riding them if your horses are going to slip over so I don't know specifically about how the um, how different police forces shoot their horses um, most horses are shod with a steel shoe a mild steel shoe and and probably the main way of getting traction is to use something like a road nail or a road pin which is a small piece of protruding normally tungsten um like a protruding pin that is hammered into the heel part of the shoes and those are your main ways of stopping slipping um this is all now completely anecdotal, but I do remember speaking to the farrier of the Met horses and he was saying actually using things like pads, so something maybe synthetic or leather that goes between the shoe and the foot and covers the whole sole of the foot can actually make them slip more. But then working with the cavalry, they don't seem to have that problem. Um, and probably the overarching outcome of my PhD that at least for me is most important is that if you're going to be assessing the foot surface impact you need to do both things at the same time so you need to assess how that foot is managed and the shoeing kind of application that it has 
and that surface as well and consider both of them because what my research did show is that when we were looking at horses with kind of steel shoes and a filled in sole so a polyurethane sole packing material um, and they were trotting on a gravel surface we seemed to be able to kind of reduce the magnitude of the impact vibrations that they experienced but when we did the same thing in a group of cavalry horses on a concrete surface almost went the other way and almost kind of like improved their ability to conduct the impact which is really not what we were after so I feel like there's lots of different things kind of coming into it and you need to be taking all of those things into account when you're trying to investigate foot surface impact and so it's this lead to trying to reduce the amount of injuries that horses will will get in a natural course of of uh, working on these surfaces so i suppose this is where it then gets a little bit sticky in that we have heaps and heaps of research in horses working at very high speeds on different surfaces um, and this all kind of comes from an epidemiological standpoint in terms of looking at factors that influence catastrophic fractures in racehorses and we actually have very little data on the kinds of musculoskeletal injuries that our leisure horses our cavalry horses our police horses those horses actually have in part i think this is because we don't necessarily diagnose things like osteoarthritis in um quite the same way that we would be able to kind of diagnose a catastrophic fracture in a racehorse it's quite clear cut if that's happened or not um and so our theory was that you very high frequency vibrations are associated with kind of degeneration or this is when I start straying into territory that's not really my own because this is now like cartilage and bone biology but they seem to be associated with damage to your subchondral bone which could potentially be a precursor for osteoarthritis but the kind of basic science evidence for that is probably not as strong as one would want it to be if you then suddenly say this thing can damp impact vibrations so every horse should have it because it will stop these damaging vibrations getting to it because obviously you do need some bone loaning and you do need some vibration to actually condition your bones so it gets quite muddy when you then try and apply this clinically I think uh, or preventatively because if we're talking about these kinds of things we were looking at it from like a preventative perspective would we actually be able to prevent osteoarthritis in these horses for example but it's that's a much more challenging question to answer than can we damp impact vibrations in horses trotting on surfaces hard surfaces and so were there certain shoes that that were used or materials that that could do that so we didn't actually change shoe material um primarily because we were trying to be practical and yes there are things like plastic shoes um polyurethane shoes but they don't last very long in horses when they're working on these surfaces because they just wear away so we were thinking well let's stick with our steel shoe because we know that that has got longevity in it it's cost effective and could we add in something to that 
so in my work it was can we add in a sole packing material and will that then be able to damp the impact vibrations without necessarily kind of shortening the lifespan of that shoeing um, on the horse because obviously that costs money if you need them to be shod more regularly um, one of my chapters did look at whether there were any differences between steel shoes and aluminium shoes so aluminium shoes again they have very short life in horses when they're working on hard surfaces but they are used in race horses they're used sometimes to manage laminitic horses and also to um, in showing horses they they, they kind of get used and, and more importantly they're readily available to us to 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 use um and one thing that i think surprises quite a few people and certainly surprised me when i first looked at my results but with your softer aluminium shoe you actually end up with kind of greater impact shock so vibrations that are of higher frequency and power compared to the steel shoe whereas if you try and think logically about how vibrations work normally something that's softer would vibrate at a lower frequency with less power but somehow when it's attached to a horse's foot that doesn't quite um that that, that doesn't seem to be what happens which actually matches in with some earlier work i think that was done by Jeremy Byrne but it's something that is it splits the farrier community so some groups of farriers think I can use a nice soft aluminium shoe and that will be shock absorbing and others go no when I hit the aluminium shoe I feel it in my arm that it's transferring kind of more shock and more impact to my arm so they perceive it to be less shock absorbing which is then what my research supports so that's and, quite and a nice little finding. Yeah, that is. <laughs> and, and have you fed that back to the, the farrier community? Or, or... I have. Um, I have. I've spoken um, at the International Hoof Care Summit in Cincinnati, which is held every year. So I spoke there about this probably about 18 months ago um, and then went back in January as well to meet with them again. So. And, and did you get some feedback ab- about what you said? So the... So some farriers say that um, it's grippier, so the aluminium shoe increases the traction so the foot doesn't slide as long, so they see that as then there being less opportunity to dissipate that impact shock. Um, And we don't really have any data to support that yet, but it would be something that's interesting to look into. It's also something that probably would change with the wear of the shoe so with an aluminium shoe the kind of heads of the clenches um protrude out the bottom of the shoe so you've then got kind of a greater surface area on that shoe so that's going to grip more anyway than say a steel shoe where the clenches are flush to the surface of the shoe um so there's lots of little things that kind of need ironing out to figure out why that might be. Can, can I ask you, do you um, talk to sort of groups of metallurgists or, or people interested in, in the metal behaviour? Yeah. Um, I didn't. I spoke to some like material engineers and I actually ended up doing quite a lot of research into road surfaces in the UK and concrete and tarmac and different kinds of surfaces that we use and the and why um which i probably can't really remember very much about right now but that was more where i ended up 
going, but there's certainly groups of materials scientists that work on these kinds of things, particularly in Germany. So it was definitely a little bit of a a step out of my um, equine vet comfort zone. <laughs> this is one thing where you, where you scratch the surface and actually the question that you're asking is, is far more complicated and has far more um, other factors to consider than you could have first envisaged. Yeah, definitely. You think, oh, this will be really nice and straightforward, put some accelerometers on some horses and change their shoes, how hard can it be? And, like, I don't know, five broken accelerometers later and a lot of crazy results and you're really scratching your head. It's <laughs> fantastic. It's fantastic. And so and you're you're so so following on for your PhD or, or during a PhD you're involved in, in um teaching farriers or getting farriers involved in, in research? So um I did teach a lot of farriers throughout my PhD. Um my supervisors um, Renata Weller and Tilo Fowl were already very engaged within that community so we did a lot of um, CPD for kind of shoeing manufacturers and it was during this time that Renata started to set up a course here at the Royal Veterinary College called the Graduate Diploma in Equine Locomotor Research so this really came about because Renata and Tilo and myself were helping a number of farriers to do research so there was a, um, a demand from the farriery community to become more involved in research. Um, in part this is because the Worshipful Company of Farriers Fellowship which is the highest level of kind of farriery qualification you can get in the UK or anywhere because the UK is really the only place where we have farriery qualifications um, requires a research component and there isn't really a lot of opportunities for the farriers to actually gain research skills. So we were helping lots of farriers individually to um, you know, collect data and develop research questions and analyse it. And I think it had been quite a long-held aim for Renata to actually set up a course where we could then help more farriers and in a way that was more kind of efficient for us. Um, and we also, or I know especially from doing my PhD, there is not very much research on family at all. Um, and so we were hoping by actually engaging this community and doing more research that we would start to address this kind of dearth of family research because you, the kind of starting point for a lot of lameness managements are how's the shoeing, how's the family work? And if we don't have the evidence to kind of support what we're looking for, it's um, it's kind of time we address that kind of hole in our knowledge, I think. So, yeah. Could, could you That's maybe explain a little bit about the, the course itself, please? Tell me. So the course is primarily aimed at farriers. Um, we've just had our first group of 12 farriers actually graduate um, a couple of weeks ago, which was amazing. And the course is designed in two parts. So the first part is actually preparing our farriery students for higher education. So a lot of them um, maybe left school maybe 30, 40 years ago um, and went through the farriery apprenticeship system. So they don't necessarily have experience of studying at university. And we wanted to make it accessible to all farriers, regardless of 
their their previous training so the first module of that course is actually um orthopedics and kind of biomechanics and that's led by um Tilo Fow and David Bolt um covering kind of anatomy physiology of the horse's locomotor system to give our students like a good basis in um kind of the area that they're going to be researching in and then we layer on top of that kind of biomechanics um theories about force force and kinetics and kinematics um in that first module and then and then the course takes the form of kind of a structure of a research paper so covering what would go in the introduction in the critical evaluation of the literature module we then have one on study design and also like biomechanics research methods so how you're actually going to collect your data um, we then have a module on data analysis and presentation and statistical methods which I think really tested a lot of our Farrieri students patients as it does with all students I think and it was quite hard to make them see that actually a lot of students struggle with this and just means they're a normal student um, and then the final module is their research project so kind of pulling all those things together um, so after their third module their study design module they then have a big summer gap where they can collect their their data um, and then most of them will have at least some of their data collected before that um, fourth module when they do their data analysis so they're kind of building their final research project um, right from that second module so when it comes to writing that final research paper they're able to draw on their assignments from previous modules to put their final paper together um, and then they they have a presentation assessment and a, a final kind of thesis to submit and their presentations were amazing this year I think we were all really really impressed with the level of work and just the amount of time that they had dedicated to their projects they had really worked so hard um, and they gave some fabulous presentations and it was I don't know if you if you mark quite a lot of things it's you don't normally say oh I really enjoyed marking but it was really nice to mark their research projects as well and really see what they had done um a lot of these students are coming with massive ideas that they've been kind of ruminating on for decades so for us it was a real challenge to get them to kind of hone in on one specific question that they were trying to ask and so yeah we had some really fantastic work um and I don't think we put them off research. A lot of them are still hoping to kind of continue on um, with their studies. Can I ask so. what 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 is their um, is there is there a journal that would be more favourable to to publish th th their research? So publishing is something we're thinking about. Um, some of them are. It, it's not necessarily to do with. It's not to do with quality. It's to do with the interested field so who's going to be interested really in reading some of these um, and some of those are certainly going to be fine to try and approach places like equine veterinary education equine veterinary journal journal of equine sciences those places um, and then for those other ones that were maybe very well maybe more preliminary or just kind of testing the water about some of the ideas they'd have we're wondering whether working with people like forge or the american farriers journal is is a way forward but this is all very much like work in progress um and also at 
the discretion of what the students would like to do next with well, what the graduates would like to do next with the, the work that they've done. It sounds a great idea so, to get that information out there because obviously if you're you're impressed by the, the, the quality that is produced then obviously yeah. there'd be a lot of people who'd be interested in, in what's going going on. And I think what a, quite a few of our students did was they actually validated techniques for um, Farrier research which other people were going to be interested in actually using. Um, and I always feel like with Farrier research, like lots of other research, we're informed by the human world um, and lots of things will start there with what, what happens in humans and is that similar in animals? Humans don't have hooves, so we are starting from scratch really with some of these some of these things i think so that's uh that's fan fantastic and um and so with with you with your with yourself so you're gonna gonna continue your involvement with 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 that um and are you gonna gonna stay in research um not right now <laughs> so i've been working in our clinical skills center for um about 18 months now and also running the course alongside that and I spend an awful lot of time thinking about what I actually like um, in my career and what I want to actually do with myself every day so I love problem solving and I find working in practice I love that part but I'm really not fussed about doing the surgery or the procedures I would quite happily just do all the thinking and none of the doing so for clinical practice that actually doesn't really work um for research i like the doing and not maybe so much a lot of the thinking that goes around it and for me teaching is the thing where i actually like all the components including the marking to a point so um that was why i moved into clinical skills and i'm actually about to move to do teaching in a different kind of sphere so teaching um, vets who are already qualified um, and qualified overseas in equine medicine but also teaching skills so this is through working with a charity called The Brook that's kind of ethos is um, sustainable um, kind of support for the global south through education so having this kind of cascading effect of vets in the UK teaching vets in Pakistan and India and um, Africa, South America, um, and teaching those vets how to teach other vets so that we get this trickle-down effect of we're kind of skilling these people up who so they can go on and skill the vets in their countries up who can also then go on and work with paraprofessionals as well. So you get this kind of trickle-down pyramid cascade system so teaching in a different environment for a little while and do, do you think that part of the reason you chose to do that not not only you said that you're very interested in teaching are maybe the challenges of continuing to do research or do you do you think that actually it's not so challenging to get postdoc uh, appointments um I think when you're thinking about Farrieri specifically, it's incredibly hard to get funding for that. Um, and yes, there is funding through the HBLB, so Horse Betting Levy Board, but if you're interested in researching 
in other horses so not race horses so like our cavalry horses or our leisure horses it's much more challenging to get funding for things like that um for me it wasn't it wasn't about the lack of funding that made me go into teaching so i was incredibly fortunate at the end of my phd in that i had been shortlisted for fellowship i had been offered a clinical the job in the clinical skills center and i'd been offered a job in practice so i then had to sit down and go well what is it that you actually want to do because you've got you know you've got these three options so it's a very um kind of fortunate situation to be in um and yeah i was driven towards the the teaching side because that was what I felt I wanted to invest my time in because I'd already invested time in clinical practice and in research and for me those are like the three key areas of if you want to stay working in higher education or I don't know in my head I had these like three core areas and was like that's the one I haven't really hit as hard as the others so I'm going to go for that one next and it's just kind of carried on from there so before we actually filmed this I said I've been winging my career so far and I'm just going to carry on winging it and that is what I'm gonna do. <laughs> so do, do you have any uh, thought about where you where you'd see yourself in 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 like five or ten years time? This is not an interview, by the way. <laughs> um, no, not really. I think a big draw for the book job as well was um, was travelling and also being able to teach primarily on horses and equines. Um, so for me, that's where I'm yeah where I'm off to next and who knows what's going to happen I didn't plan my career this way as I said I wanted to be a small animal vet working in the Surrey Hills and that was it and that's I can't actually think of anything worse now so I'm yeah so you can, so can I see the um the time that you've had in the clinical skill center here and your involvement with that are you going to use some of those uh, techniques or training is, is that what you're going to use in for the next few years yeah definitely so there is definitely an art to teaching skills and um to all those of you who work in practice I don't think you actually realize the kind of expertise you have with the skills that you use on a day-to-day basis and actually having to think about each individual step to doing a procedure is something that can be really challenging when you do it intuitively so teaching other vets how to break those skills down and break their thought processes down as well when we come to things like clinical reasoning something that I really enjoy doing and I certainly didn't appreciate the kind of level of intuitive thought that I had as a vet until I started trying to teach vet students where you have to unpick all of that and somehow like lay that out for them to be understand for them to understand how to kind of move to towards that intuitive level so that's definitely something I'm going to take with me into my job um I was also quite lucky in that I was able to bring um, a number of the international book vets to the RVC Clinical Skills Centre a couple of weeks ago so they ran um, they ran a full week's workshop for the senior book vets 
um, and we had vets visiting from Pakistan, India, Kenya, Ethiopia and Senegal and so they all came over to the clinical skills centre for a day and we got them to try and teach each other clinical skills whilst one of them was playing um, a kind of not very good vet student um, and being quite a difficult student to try and help them to think about how they deliver their skills training and we also got them to kind of break down clinical tasks and write basic instructions out on post-it notes and have each other follow them through so we've already kind of planted that seed of um, of who I am and where I'm coming from um, into the organisation which was really good fun and somehow I managed to work with my current boss and my new boss in the same room and it wasn't too daunting or too awkward and I still don't quite know how I managed to pull that off but well well, well done with that and the, and the very best of luck with the future um could I ask before we wrap up um uh, obviously you, you, you graduated obviously and spent some time in practice did a PhD and uh, we worked in the clinical skills center but obviously there's been different probably stresses during that time so yeah. could I ask what you do more on a, on a personal level to look after your your mental well-being and, and health and what have you found helpful at different so points? I think for me what I found really quite helpful was realizing that um any kind of poor moments of mental health I experienced in practice were not solely to do with practice. I think it's really important not to fall into the trap of being like, it's just the pressures of the high pressure environment of being in practice, the life and death situations and client expectations and things like that. Because I've certainly experienced dips in my mental health during my PhD and working in the clinical skills center. And um, that's kind of just how life goes. Um, so, I always now sound like, I don't know, I keep saying always as though everyone in the veterinary world has heard me speak before, but I have spoken about this before. And I think one of the important things that I've started doing is really thinking about breathing and checking in with my breath. So I'm certainly well signed up to like mindfulness in in, in that in that sense. Um, and potentially my inability to recognise my breath is potentially more, um, I don't know, amusing than others. So I have suffered from this for as long as I can remember, but if I get incredibly stressed, I will pass out. So I've passed out before GCSE exams. I've passed out in the PM room into the arms of Richard Pryor, which he will never let me forget. And I've also passed out in surgery as well. So for me, really getting a handle on the fact breathing is quite important has been pretty important to me so that always makes me sound quite mad um my newest thing for really what I feel is like setting a pressing a reset button in my mind is I've started doing improv courses um and classes so improv is like is completely improvised acting and it is about making it up taking risks failing and finding it funny so there's lots of things that you can't you can't tap into those things in day-to-day -day life and practice or really in a work environment because really you're aiming to be successful and not to fail. So this has been really important for me in teaching me to um, just have a go and take a risk and just really like let your hair down and have a laugh. And 
I am rushing off this evening to do my first ever improv performance. So that's been another thing that I've tried and I really think that I think a lot of veterinary professionals would actually really enjoy it. Um so hopefully we'll bring some like improv CPD to you at some point. Um but yeah, on a more basic day to day level. Go for a walk, go outside, make sure you see the sky at some point, hard as that might be if you're working long hours in clinics. Um yeah, I certainly don't pretend that I have all the answers when it comes to things like that but well thank you very much yeah. for for sharing your ideas and I think the very best of luck with improv tonight <laughs> and uh, and thank you for uh, talking to us about your your uh, your career to date so thank you very much Amy and good luck with um, with the future endeavors thank you very much thanks again for listening and don't forget to hit the subscribe button on your generic fruit based device and that way you don't even have to worry about missing a podcast if you can leave us a five star review on apple podcast acast or spotify that would be great and don't forget to tell your friends vet friends or any other friends we'll place some show notes on the rvc pages so just type in rvc research podcast into your search engine of choice and it should be to the tree if you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast then please get in touch you can either email dbarfield at rvc.ac.uk or tweet at dumbar Field. Until next time, bye-bye.